This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. This person died in 2012, age 83. As a child, photographs show him to be plump, round-faced, slanting-eyed, droopy-lidded, and arching-browed. So a fat baby, huh? <laughs> I can only think of that comedian. John Candy. Oh my gosh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not John Candy. As he grew up, lower class, Jewish, and gay, he felt permanently shunted to the margins. I mean, I would do it, but um, <laughs> let me see. <laughs> Philip Roth? Not Philip Roth. Great guess, though. His characters were described as headstrong, bossy, even obnoxious. <gasps> Farley, Chris Farley. <laughs> Not Chris Farley. Oh. <laughs> he was largely a self-taught illustrator. His work was the subject of critical studies and major exhibitions. In the second half of his career, he was renowned as a designer of theatrical sets. He, oh, Dr. Seuss. Theodore Geisel. So fucking close. In 1964, he won the Caldecott Medal for Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, oh, Maurice, what's his name? The guy who, no, not that guy. Oh, Maurice Sendak. Maurice Sendak. I knew it. Damn it. I thought he was French. <laughs> Today's dead celebrity is Maurice Sendak. We're animals. We're violent. We're criminal. We're not so far away from the gorillas and the apes, those beautiful creatures. And then we're supposed to be civilized. We're supposed to go to work every day. We're supposed to be nice to our friends and send Christmas cards to our parents. It's supposed to be all these things which trouble us. And if I've done anything, I've had kids express themselves as they are, impolitely, lovingly. They don't mean any harm. They just don't know what the right way is. And as it turns out, sometimes the so-called right way is utterly the wrong way. What a monstrous confusion. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Ahmed Kapoor. And on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Maurice Sendak died 2012, age 83. Category one grading the first line of their obituary. Maurice Sendak, widely considered the most important children's book artist of the 20th century, who wrenched the picture book out of the safe, sanitized world of the nursery and plunged it into the dark, terrifying, and hauntingly beautiful recesses of the human psyche, died on Tuesday in Danbury, Connecticut. He was 83. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, right? I think pretty good. I think we got to start with the most important. Yeah, that's actually my major quibble. Whose choice was that? The New York Times, apparently. But this is putting him against Dr. Seuss? Yeah, that is actually the thing I take the greatest issue with. So actually, can we return to that? Let's talk about the rest okay. of this. Yeah. Okay, so who wrenched the picture book out of the safe, sanitized world of the nursery? I like that imagery. It's very, it's evocative. Yes. Wrenched the picture book out of a sanitized world and plunged it into the dark, terrifying, and hauntingly beautiful recesses of the human psyche. Like, holy shit. They really went for it here. Absolutely. Was it that dark and terrifying? I see that 
referenced over and over again. What's interesting is that he makes this case over and over that adults are horrified by things that children are not horrified by, like where the wild things are, for example. Kids are not scared of the wild things, the beasts, because Max isn't scared of them. But, you know, parents at the time— and with a lot of his books, had this, like, we should be freaked out about this. Same yeah, these are going to haunt our children. Right. They're like, a lot of the artwork is, I don't know, fucking weird. You yeah. Know? And it, like, messes with you. Correct. Um, but so does Sesame Street. I disagree. Everything in Sesame Street looks huggable to me. Even the big bird in the Grouch? I think so. I mean, Grouch is a little bit silly and a little gross, maybe. You kind of think that there's a smell there. But you, you feel like the Grouch could be cleaned up. Okay, to wear as a wild thing or a goblin. No, they got sharp teeth. They got big eyes. And then the goblins have dark faces that we never actually see. So dark and terrifying was modifying the human psyche, not the illustrations. So what I think they're saying is that his art just tapped into what was already there and otherwise not talked about. You know, what should children's stories contain? Well, how would I know? All I do know is that my parents were immigrants and they didn't know that they should clean the stories up for us. So we heard horrible, horrible stories and we love them. We absolutely love them. Yeah, what do you think about wrenched? I love it. It kind of gives this image of like being protected in like a mother's arms and he's ripping out like children. Well, or ripping out truth. I mean, I think that there is something very pre-existing about whatever he's extracting from the safe, sanitized world of the nursery. Yeah, he's ripping out reality. Yeah. So not so different than what we talked about in Larry McMurtry with like the acid tests and all of Ken Kesey, the same thing. It's like this reality is there. You just have to bring it out of you. It really feels like a first line that they spent an hour putting together. Well, all right. Where do you come down on it? Numerically? Yeah. Do you want to give it a score? I may be personal besting here at a nine. Wow. It's ambitious. I think I'm going to give it a four. Really? I think so. What? Okay. Maybe that's too low. You didn't even bring any of that to the conversation. I know. I know. I know. If that's what you're feeling, I want to hear it. It's the widely considered the most important children's book artist. Like, who the fuck are they to decide? There is something very precious about Maurice Sendak, but there's something that really pisses me off about anointing anybody in the first line of the obituary. And this has like a art critic bias to it that really frustrates me. If it weren't for that superlative, I think I would have been eight or nine with you. But because of that, I'm downgrading it quite a bit. But here's the thing. It's accurate to how the New York Times sees the world. I don't know if it's accurate to the world. That our Brooklyn-born, slightly demented children's author and illustrator, as opposed to Dr. Seuss, which permeates all of America and the world. Correct. So that's where I come down on this. Good for you. I like it. You make a compelling argument. I'm not changing it, but good for you, Michael. Yeah. All right, then. Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we should be talking about this person, why we love them. I wonder if this one's on your list, because this is maybe my single favorite thing about him. He is not sentimental about children. His overall philosophy on kids as being tyrannical, vulnerable, and full of character, I just love his take on kids. And I think it really pushes against what people assume is the nature of childhood. 
here's why I love it. I think it is very, very easy. Certainly, it's easy for me and for parents to get sentimental about childhood. And he's emphatic about this, is that we should not be sentimental about childhood. Yeah, and he's also, I think, acknowledging the difficulty of it. Yeah. Of how hard it is to be in a child in a confusing world of giants. And books should and have to be serious for them. I don't mean serious solemn. They could be serious funny, which is even better. But they have to be honest to a child's life, which is a very complicated life, as complicated as our lives are. And how dare we assume that they are not, since we become what we were. Hadn't we best treat the kid like a serious subject? I'm not, I don't set out to freak children out or to scare them. I'm setting out to do just the opposite, to comfort them. But the only way I know how to comfort them is by telling them the truth. And the truth, before you get to the comfort, often is scary. But it also is just a clearer-eyed look on what it means to be a human, certainly what it means to be a kid, but then really what it means to be a person. You know, in some sense, I think he's in touch with an inner child. I actually have a really good quote about that. Do you want to, you want to hear this? Yeah. Okay. In this biography I read, this guy Jonathan Cott says, I don't believe that, in a way, the kid I was grew up into me. He still exists somewhere in the most graphic, plastic, physical way. I have a tremendous concern for him and interest in him. I communicate with him, or try to, all the time. And one of my worst fears is losing contact with him. And I don't want this to sound coy or schizophrenic, but at least once a day, I feel I have to make contact. The pleasures I get as an adult are heightened by the fact that I experience them as a child at the same time. Some inner child poetry right there, right? That I think speaks to his overall philosophy of not being sentimental about what it means to be a kid. Yeah. So that's my thing number one. I like it. Number two, I put the discovery story. So how he actually became an illustrator for children's books. So he's working for FAO Schwartz in the late 40s, early 50s as a window dresser, making paper mache and types of things to advertise toys and set scenes. And he has discovered, not so accidentally, I believe the manager of the store actually like arranged this by the woman that became essentially his publishing partner for a good bit of his life. Is this Ursula Nordstrom? Yeah. She also was responsible for Goodnight Moon and for some of where the uh, sidewalk ends. And um, Charlotte's Web. And she ushers in this kind of new period of children culture in the mid-20th century. Anyway. What happened is she essentially came by the store one day serendipitously and, quote, discovered Maurice Sendak and said, I think you have what it takes to be an illustrator. And that was the beginning of this entire career. To me, it's akin to Ebert discovering John Prine in the back of that bar. You have these talents that need to be nurtured, but some bit of luck and some bit of serendipity and some bit of divine universal intervention brings it together, and here you are on a trajectory. Yeah, It's a fairy tale, Yeah, almost, and I like it when it's true. That's a good one. It's a really good one. All right, I'll take number three. Seems to accept aging, or at least claims to develop an ability to see beauty as he ages. He was interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air numerous times. But in the last interview that he gave with her, I mean, there's this, it actually made me tear up because he pays her this compliment saying, there's something in you that I've always loved being interviewed by you and, and thank you. <laughs> it's funny because there was an article that came out a few years prior to that in the New York Times that was 
and it seemed to paint a picture of Sindak as not aging all that gracefully. And I almost felt like he was countering that in this interview with Terry Gross. But I mean, he does say that I am seeing beauty in the world in a way I never have, that it's good to be older and to have all this time, even if my body is breaking down, even if there's pain. And I don't know if I ever told you this, my father-in-law, Allison's dad, he died really, really well. He knew death was coming. He'd talk about it. Like, we had great conversations about what it was like to die. He's the only person I've ever known who, like, kind of walked me through what he was going through. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. And I heard a little of that in Maurice Sendak in this interview with Terry Gross, that one of my fears is that I'm going to get old and I'm not going to have as much interest and I'm not going to be able to keep up with culture and life. And I need to see people who get to their 80s and say, I'm loving at least parts of it and here's why. In that same interview, he's like, now maybe I'm crazy and maybe I'm rationalizing, but even that honesty makes me think he's not, you know? So my thing number three is I like the way he aged and to some extent his dying. Okay. I'll take it. Yeah. Okay, number four, 338 words. That's all there was in Where the Wild Things Are. Wow. So this man's legend and legacy and part of the whole reason we're even talking about him right now is because of that book. And it was 338 words long. That's it. Ten sentences. Wow, that's nothing. That is nothing at all. I mean, granted, it's the illustrations. It's the imagery that made the whole thing. But what I like about it is the masterpiece idea of it as having simplicity. And I'm not sure, we should talk about this if this is an antiquated idea, but I like the idea of a simple masterpiece. I don't think it's an antiquated idea. I think this happens in music all the time. Schubert is so big, so delicate. But what he did was pick a form that looks so humble and quiet so that he could crawl into that form and explode emotionally, find every way of expressing every emotion in this miniature form. And I got very excited, and I wondered, is it possible that's why I do children's books? I picked a modest form, which was very modest back in the 50s and the 40s. I mean, children's books were the bottom end of the totem pole. I would put Where the Wild Things Are as maybe the greatest children's book I've ever encountered. I'd make that superlative statement, which I suppose contradicts what I was <laughs> saying. I'm still giving it but a it's fucking four. You're not talking the person. It's also my opinion. Yeah. That's very different than you working for a large publication. Exactly. That's a good one, Amit. 338. Yeah. And I think just to wrap that up, what I like about both the serendipitous discovery and this very brief masterpiece is it's so not logical. Mm. You know, I think, (laughs) granted, since the 60s, we've changed a lot to move much more to rational away from emotional. But when these types of things occur, you're taking away rationality and logic, and you're sort of just getting into the emotion of wonder that these types of things can happen, that there are still golden tickets. And you have to believe in some of that in order to have, I think, a decent outlook on life. Do you ever heard that phrase, create your own luck? Exactly. That serendipity is still an option, and it's a message of hope. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And surprise. Unpredictability. And surprise. Yeah. yeah. I do have a number five, 
I personally connect with him in some surprising ways. One thing that really leaps out is he's the youngest of three. He's got a brother five years older and a sister almost 10 years older. That's the same pattern as my family. I have a sister who's about 10 years older and a brother who's about five years older. And the way he talks about his relationship with his brother and a sister, for that matter, is very familiar. My brother being five and a half years older than me has always felt like a good number in that it was the right amount to sort of like really look up to him and for us to not have a kind of violent sibling rivalry. He had more of a protector role. A little bit more, yeah. And absolutely was, you just put your finger on it, was the thing I really related to. The way his brother kind of helped make sense of the chaos of the world, that really felt familiar. Another thing that I connected with was his obsession with Herman Melville. Do you remember this about me? I do. He's, I didn't. I was wondering if we were going to talk about it. Here. I don't know if I should because so I'm a Melville descendant. He's my great 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 grandfather, and I've never quite known what to make of that factoid of my life. I tell people to the extent that you'll let me because <laughs> I know it's just interesting. <laughs> it it's is just kind of interesting, right? Yeah. I, there's I, no there's no royalties trickling down. But. None. Yes. No. And I find it kind of interesting, but he does have a fascination with Melville, like Musindak does. Oh, he named his dog Herman. His, yeah. yeah, yeah. He also uh, had an extraordinary Herman Melville collection, all kinds of first editions and signed copies and shit like that. And then I guess the last thing that I really related to, in some interview, I heard him talking about not wanting to be a kid, kind of in a hurry to grow up. That I really relate to. That, I do too. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, I didn't want to be a kid. You know, I was I was like anxious to be an adult. I was really ready to get there. I, on a very deep level, just related to some of the bare-bone facts of his life and how he viewed the world and family dynamics and so forth. Yeah, I think that's great. And that is genuinely something that you love about him. So I like it. I need to ask you something, though, about not wanting to be a kid or looking forward to not being a kid. Yeah. Were you ever bothered by the Toys R Us lyrics? I don't want to grow up fun Toys R Us kid. They got a million toys and toys R Us that I can play with. Yeah, I think I was. I remember being bothered by it. Because you're, in so many ways, powerless, right? You're, this, I mean, this is a real Sindakian sort of thing, is that children are tyrannical. They want to have domain or whatever, godlike powers over the world, yet they don't because of what adults say and what sort of rules are imposed on you. And I I hated that from the beginning. It's just confusing, right? Because you need the protection, you need the love and the nurturing all around you. You're completely incapable of functioning outside of your own home or your own school, but you're like, oh, I really like what's outside. Yeah. But it's just so far away. Yeah. And, and I think that that's like the myth that he's poking at in some ways. Yeah, we want to be able to make our own decisions and drive our own destinies, but we also want to really be protected. Yeah, and loved. Yeah. Shall we move on? Yes. Category three, Malkovich Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind, and they can have a front row seat behind his eyeballs. The point is to imagine what memories or experiences might have been interesting. What do you got? So when Where the Wild Things came out after a few years as it started to kind of be distributed and reach, it wasn't 
you know, the 60s were very different. It's not like you drop something and it goes viral, right? right? These things take a lot of time. Right. So he started to get mail, which I think was encouraged from a lot of kids who loved it. And they were mostly asking questions or like sending money saying, I would like a ticket to where the wild things are. Yeah. And that's so sweet. Stuff like that. And he responded to a lot of them, which I think is great. But there was one story that was told about a boy named Jim who wrote and said, I want to go to where the wild things are. How do I get there? So Sindak wrote back and said, thank you, I left your note, and drew a picture of one of the wild things on the card. And some weeks go by, and he gets a note from Jim's mother. And it says, Maurice, thank you so much. Jim loved your card so much, he ate it. <laughs> and Marie Sindak thought that's the highest possible compliment. He, that is exactly what he said, that it was the highest possible compliment that he could receive from a child for his work. So I think it's a Malkovich moment. Well, just that, this like surrealist act of a child eating paper, but it also was just proof to everything that embodied his artistry. Yeah. You know, it's not all perfectly like teddy bears. There is twisted tendencies in children and in humans, and perhaps you show appreciation for something that spoke to you by swallowing it. A hundred percent. And so in some of the books I read, they talk about cannibalism as a recurring theme in Syndax books. I mean, even in Where the Wild Things Are, you know, the wild things say, we'll eat you up, we love you so. And sure enough, I mean, it's not exactly cannibalistic, but eating this original Maurice Syndax artwork that came in the mail that's fucking beautiful. It is. I, so, I would, so I want to be there when Maurice hears of it. And I, I mean, I kind of love Jim. Yeah, I wonder where he is today. I was just thinking. That's great. I'm so glad you brought it up. It was one of my Malkovich contenders. Okay. Okay. This kind of speaks to some of the things I love about him. Around 2007, he's been suffering from a lot of back pain. He's been aging. But he's starting to feel a little bit better. And he goes on a walk with Tony Kushner, who was this playwright, wrote Angels in America and was a really good friend of Maurice Sendak. Maurice is sounding kind of like Zen. He's going for this. I'm trying to get to this Buddhist place where I just accept things and see beauty. This is all about the aging process. And he can almost tell that death is near. He's telling Tony, I'm just happy to be alive. Then this car pulls up while these guys are walking. And it's one of Maurice's neighbors. This is in Connecticut. And it sounds like rural, pastoral Connecticut. And this neighbor says, last night I saw Jim Henson on American Masters, the PBS program. And the neighbor says, you should be on there, Maurice. Jim was so good and you're so great. And then this neighbor drives off and Maurice turns to Tony Kushner and says, that fucking Jim Henson, he stole from me. And then they both laugh, and he says, so much for Zen. I love this for a lot of reasons. <laughs> One, the idea that Jim Henson stole from Maurice Sendak is hilarious to me. But what I really like, and the reason it's a Malkovich moment, is that there is this, like, I'm aging, I'm getting to a place of acceptance. Fucking Jim Henson, right? <laughs> there is this, like, he's not there yet. This is a man still in process, you yes. know, and still trying to get to that place of acceptance. It's like the Lloyd Braun Serenity Now. Serenity Now! Serenity Now! Yes. In Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Screaming Serenity Now. That's great. Know. I like that. I thought you'd like that one. All right. Oh, no, we can't leave Malkovich yet without pointing out something. Oh. So, being John Malkovich, directed by... Oh, Spike Jones, Who also directed... Where the Wild Things Are. Exactly. Yeah, good call. 
Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? Is there anything public about these relationships? So, no marriages. Maurice Sendak in 2008 comes out as gay. After his partner had died. His partner of roughly 50 years. Eugene David Glenn was his name. So, it sounds like they connected, got together in his late 20s, early 30s, and it sounded like they were committed partnership. It sounded very domestic. Yes, absolutely. Like they, they lived in a house in Connecticut. And I mean, he admits that his life changed entirely after Eugene died, yeah. that he went into a depression and just completely changed his view on life, which he could never recover. He could never unring that bell. But I couldn't find anything else about this. I mean, despite the fact that Maurice Sendak gave a ton of interviews, like this didn't come out until four years before he died. Yes, Terry Gross did ask him also about children, and he's like... Well, let, let me ask you this. You, you came out a few years ago. Correct. If you were able to be out in a period like we live in today, where it's, it's socially acceptable in lots of circles to be gay and have children, would you have had a child? No. No. There's too much hard work involved. Uh-huh. And I'm, I am devoted to being an artist... This guy is such a curmudgeon. Yeah. Total grump. A total grump. He does say, like, look, I don't like people. To the extent that I like anybody, I like kids a little bit more because they're just honest and, yes. they're, and they're real. Let's talk about kids. I don't trust them. Is that true? <laughs> they are just biding their time until we're gone, and then they get our stuff. That's really good. And they good. take our place. Uh-huh. That's an interesting point of view. Thank you. But not interesting to me particularly. <laughs> 
there is something in this country that is so opposed to understanding the complexity of children. It's quite amazing. Do you like them? I like them as few and far between as I do adults. Maybe a bit more because I really don't like adults. I don't like But I don't know what to make of this category. This is an unusual one here. I think we have to divide it into two areas. So one is the actual stability of it. What we know about it, did it look good, fulfilling, happy? And then the second side is the secrecy part. Yeah. So first, I found no contrary evidence of it ever not working. Yeah. By all accounts, it seemed to be pretty stable, pretty domestic, and pretty fun. He'd talk about just going traveling and we'd read our favorite books together. But then again, like these things, just due to the era, we probably don't get much of the where there's periods of fighting and separation and so forth. I mean, I'm happy to sign off on that. I just with the major asterisks that we're always going in this category on limited information. We're going on really limited information here. Right. But as best we can tell, looks like a long and happy partnership. Yes, which he never told his parents about and he never came out well, this uh, until is, this after is the his second death. part here, right? We're going into the second part. The of, secrecy. Yes. I mean, one thing that he said was, do you think I could have ever actually been a children's author if I was openly gay? And I think he's pretty damn right. I'm not even sure how well America would handle that right now, Yeah, much less the 60s and 70s. I also think that it becomes all the more imperative in a way as his books discover controversy, right? Like in the night, what's it called? In the night's kitchen? Yes. And that image of a small boy's penis like drove everybody fucking crazy. And he was so pissed off. Like, why in the hell is this courting so much controversy? Go to the Museum of Fine Arts and there's, you know, naked children, you know, in statues from Rome and ancient Greece. Why is it not okay now to put this into a children's book? Even Where the Wild Things Are gets banned all the time. Some people even thought it was dangerous. I don't see that. But I would imagine if you're making art that is provoking that kind of reaction and you're gay and in the closet about it, you would want to keep that closet door all the more shut. Yeah, I don't think he had a choice with what his career was. Yeah. He also said, which I found pretty interesting, he's like, you know, no one ever really asked me either. Yeah, that, in that article that came out, he's like, people have asked me everything except whether or not I was gay. So I'll just tell you, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of incredible. This is, I want to ask about this and this idea of having children when you are a children's icon in some way. Yeah, Dr. Seuss, by the way, also did not have kids. Shel Silverstein had two. Yeah, so what is this about? You know, I know a guy who owns a dance studio with his wife that is like dancing summer camps. And I remember asking him if they plan to have children. And he's like, no, I got to deal with 2,500 of them a year Yeah, uh, (laughs) Yeah, already. So it's just funny that these people that are in kid industries, I know Maurice Sendak and Dr. Seuss, are different because their actual interaction with the children is not necessarily as much as we would think. It's not like they're sitting in classrooms all the time and reading their books. And I think this goes way back to your thing, number one, is they had respect and sympathy for children, and they saw children as little humans, and they liked them. Yeah. As much as they liked, you know, adults, because these are just complex, regular human beings, but they don't want to raise them. Dr. Seuss had one quote, apparently, where he said, you raise them, I'll entertain them, or something like that, which I think sums it up nicely. But it almost seems like they also don't necessarily, in any way, shape, or form, respond to the cultural pressure to have had kids. 
I guess I, the reason I'm sort of pushing on this is that, you know, I have kids. I love my kids. I connect with other people who have kids and who love their kids. But I also, at the same time, wish that there was not this cultural pressure to have children, right? This expectation that we're all supposed to be procreating. Because I think it's weird. I think it's misplaced. I think it's not just irrational, but sometimes like, what is that all about? I like that he didn't have kids in a way. I also like that he, gay or not gay, he was like, I don't need to have kids. That's not what my life's all about. And yeah, maybe that's the key point too, is that you know you can have a large influence on children, on the next generation, and on future generations without being the one to either procreate or raise them. I mean, I do also wonder if this is actually the twin sister of the same impulse to sentimentalize childhood. That one of the reasons that there is this sentiment out there that you should have kids is that by having kids, you're reminded of the experience of childhood and perhaps begin to connect with your inner child, which I do think is a good thing. And I do think that's a good framework for what it means to be a healthy human being and should understand it with clear eyes in a Marie Sendak kind of way. I, I wonder if that's not where that impulse comes from, that romanticizing and sentimentalizing childhood also means go out and have kids. Like, it seems like part of the same... It does very much seem like it's tied to that. Maybe we should wrap the love and marriage category here, because I'm not sure there's a clean ending to any of this. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Okay, good call. Okay. Category five, net worth. I got $20 million. I actually wouldn't have been surprised by more in a way. I don't know, the sort of pastoral life in Connecticut, plus the royalties from where the wild things are. I think that alone. I mean, from that, the trilogies. And his second act yeah. was pretty fruitful as well. You know, designing sets. Uh, I think he did costume design. But this wasn't for, like, little neighborhood theater stuff. He was doing some pretty big-time things. Major productions, yeah, absolutely. But $20 million sounds good. And what do you think, then, about this level of fame? Or is oh, that well, that's up the later? next category. Okay. In fact, let's we'll get to it. We'll save it for that. Let's, let's get to it, unless okay. you want to talk more about net worth. I don't, but I did just want to uncover that. I found that he was a Sesame Street consultant. Yeah, he was on the board of directors for the, what is it, the workshop? What do you call it? The uh, children's workshop? It's the thing that gave birth to Sesame Street and a lot of great kids programming on PBS. I will say this. I mean, like, when I had kids and I was like, what kind of TV are they going to watch? Boy, it was nice to discover all the children's programming on PBS. When you become a parent... Or when I became a father, for me, you know, one of the things that you rediscover is like, <laughs> all right, what is the music that we can agree on? Because I'm not listening to Rafi all goddamn day. So we're going to do the Beatles and we're going to do the Beach Boys and classic rock actually works pretty well. And Baby Shark? No. See, that's what I, like, I get the, I, I can't do it, right? Okay. And you do come upon forms of entertainment where you're like as into it as they are. Where the Wild Things is good. And I think Dr. Seuss, I fucking love Dr. Seuss. A lot of Pixar movies, a lot of Miyazaki. There is something to be said for artists who can appeal to all ages. But it's not dulling the parents. Right, right. Because there's a lot of that crap out there of like books where I'm like, this is stupid. We shouldn't be fucking reading this. I don't actually say that to my kids, but. Yeah, you don't write that in Sharpie. On the book well, cover. Yes. <laughs> Wait till they go to bed. I'm like, fuck this book. Yeah. Yeah. No, Green Eggs and Ham's good, though. Okay. Shall we move on? Now we can move on. All right. Category six Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Hall of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. 
I'll say as well as parodies too. So here's what I got. Let's do Simpsons first. I didn't know about this. In season 17, there is an episode called The Land of Wild Beasts. There's a character named Milton Burkhart, who is the author of this book, and he is a clear parody of Marie Sendak. And the whole show is like an homage to this book. I've never seen this episode before. Episodes, I haven't. I'm definitely intrigued to go yeah, watch it Yeah, season 17. But Marie Sendak does not voice anything. Where am I? Land of wild beasts, little girl. <laughs> Not scared. Not scared. For God's sake, girl, you're eight years old. It's natural for you to feel scared sometime. But I'm too smart to get scared. Lisa, everybody gets scared, no matter how old or how smart they are. I haven't seen it, but there it is. Saturday Night Live, I found nothing. And then finally, Halls of Fame. He was never on Arsenio Hall, I'm afraid, though he was on Colbert. He was on Colbert. Won the Caldecott Medal, of course, for Where the Wild Things Are. He's in the New York Writers Hall of Fame, and he does have a National Medal of Arts, like Larry McMurtry. Okay. Personal favorite, though, in accolades is he has two elementary schools named after him. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, I like that bit of posterity. I kind of think that this, once again, validates our criteria for fame. That there is an obscure Simpsons and not a whole lot on SNL. Maurice Sendak is not a household name. All right, category seven. Mm-hmm. Category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for the year a person was born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. So, life expectancy for men born in the US in 1928 was 55.6. Maurice lived to 83, just shy of his 84th birthday, so he beat it by about 28 years. That's pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. Uh, Especially when any biography or summary article you see of him talks about how his childhood was riddled with sickness. Yes. Because like they were in this dense housing. In Brooklyn. Yeah, in Brooklyn with all of these relatives coming over from Europe basically to escape the rise of the Nazis. Right. And they were just in these dense spaces and all of these diseases just going around and they were just constantly sick. Yeah, he talks about whooping cough and, you know, scarlet fever. And and he was like a particularly sickly child. He was in bed a lot. He didn't participate in sports. He had what sounded like a very, very lonely childhood and develops this relationship with the window. He's got this fixation with windows. He talks about it being the movie theater. Yes. You know, for his life. But he also had a prophecy he talked about. I think this was in one of the interviews about like, he just thought he would be dead by 30. Yeah. I think because he was so surrounded by death. Uh, he lost practically all of his extended family in the Holocaust. In the Holocaust. Yeah. And he just assumed that he would have a short life. So, yeah. It sort of speaks to his understanding of fear and of death. Yes. He's proximate to death. All right. So, yeah, 28 years over. What about the grace? I liked it. And I liked the kind of the turn at the end. This like overly sentimental being very open about how he loves life and how beautiful life is. Yeah, this is my thing. In the imagery of it. I didn't even just see grace. I saw a turn towards brightness in those last 10 years or so. Yeah, he's pretty open about struggling with anxiety and depression for most of his life. There's no doubt every single work he put out, every angle of those illustrations is colored with some history of depression. Yeah. Let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. Michael, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, If you could take 
today's dead celebrity to any retail store, what would it be? Ooh. I think I would take him to Half Price Books, Ahmed. Half Price Books? Half Price Books, absolutely. Explain yourself, sir. Well, I, th- I love shopping for books with people. Shopping for books is always stimulates interesting conversation, right? You browse the different aisles and you see you know different topics come to mind. Have you ever read this author? Have you ever read that book? It's just a good place to talk and wander and discover. So yeah, absolutely. Half Price Books is an awesome venue to connect with people, to discover books that you've long forgotten about or that you haven't read. And it's all a great price. And you know what? Half Price Books is celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books, movies, and music. There are over 120 stores, and you can find out more at hpb.com. At this point in the show, we've mostly covered the knowable information, and now we pivot towards being a little bit more introspective, try and take our best guess at what we think it would have been like to have been this person. The first of the introspective categories is man in the mirror. What did they think about their own reflection? What do you have here? I think older Maurice did not care at all. I think he was a guy of the mind and a guy of the imagination, And perhaps the way he looked at body and face, it was just irrelevant almost to the human experience. Yeah. Though when you do look at pictures of him from the 60s, I mean, he was very handsome, very like well-kept and well-dressed. So I think that part of him was a little more self-conscious. But if I'm going to go with an overall answer, I'm going to say irrelevant. I leaned no here. The 2008... New York Times article where he comes out, he is described as, quote, a square-shaped gnome. I think he struggled with self-acceptance. And I think it's not hard to imagine that his closeted homosexuality played into that. Does that actually translate into, I don't like myself in the mirror or not? I think it does. I mean, Yeah, definitely. I think he worked on self-acceptance. I think he tried to get there. But I'm going on balance. No, I don't think he liked his reflection. So what cruel motherfucking journalist would call him a square-shaped gnome? I don't know. I mean, he's he's so, you know, crusty and curmudgeonly and, you know, abrasive and all, and all those things that, you know, maybe they thought he could just take it or maybe they thought he would even like it that he's described as a square-shaped that, that's gnome. That's a good point. I think that's true. Yeah. I don't know. It is kind of a ballsy thing to write. Yes. All right, next category, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, we want to get at how do they think they felt about their own voice? Would they even leave it in their outgoing voicemail? What do you think? I think he liked it, but it was very like gruff. It sounded like a smoker's voice yeah. a bit. It, I mean, it, it sounded exactly like somebody born in the 1920s in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was uh, a great Brooklyn accent. Yes. But he's got some shit to say. But he loved using it, yeah. I think. And you heard that in the interviews. Newt Gingrich said it. Children don't have a work ethic. But Newt Gingrich is an idiot. A great rebound. He's a historian. Yes, but there is something so hopelessly gross and vile about him that it's hard to take him seriously, so let's not take him seriously. Well, let's agree to disagree. Sure. Okay. I I think he liked talking, he liked using it. Especially in critical contexts. Like, if he was ready to slam somebody, 
or just express emotion, specifically of a negative variety. I think she really liked using it. And I'm going to bring some examples that I wrote down. Oh, please. And he was always prompted about, like, what do you think about what's happening in literature? So what he said about Salman Rushdie, who once gave him a bad review in the New York Times. Yeah, I saw that. He said, that flaccid fuckhead, he was detestable. I called up the Ayatollah, and nobody knows that. Did he actually say that? Yes. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> um, and as uh, to Roald Dahl, am I saying that? I, Roald Dahl, yeah. Roald Dahl, he said, the cruelty in his books is off-putting. Scary guy. I know he's very popular, but what's nice about this guy? He's dead. That's what's nice about him. <laughs> really? When asked to comment on Stephen King, bullshit. So he was asked about ebooks, you know, and I think yeah. there was some conversation about is there going to be an interactive iPad book for where the wild things are? And what Maurice said is, fuck them, is what I say. I hate those ebooks. They cannot be the future. They may well be. I will be dead and I won't give a shit. So all this points me to believe that he liked using his own voice. And I think he would on the answer machine. And he also had a problem with self importance. In a certain way, yeah, that I think leads me to believe that, hey, if you've got his number, I don't think it's very widely out there. You're going to get his real voice. It's not going to be flowery, yeah, but you're going to get it. It's not going to be sugar-coated. I have nothing to add. Okay. <laughs> nice work on that one. Okay, next category. Regrets, public or private? What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night? I, I mean, two public and one private. Okay, you start. His book outside over there was in many ways the most agonizing of, of the ones he worked on. The baby kidnapping. The kidnapping one, yeah. He shared artwork with somebody before he was ready for it, and he said it set him back six months. He just wasn't ready to receive that feedback yet. So that's one regret. The bigger one is I, he did express in that New York Times article that he came out too late, that he wishes he came out as gay earlier. They didn't say much more about that, and I tried to find what else he had to say about it. And it wasn't even a quote. That was just how the Times reported it in this article. And, I, and so initially, I had this as a private regret until I saw it in that article. I don't think I'm obviously didn't have anything to be ashamed of, but that doesn't matter. That's not how our crazy fucking country interprets, you know, a gay man who's writing children's books. Correct. So I don't know what to make of that regret. So my interpretation of it is he didn't come out until after his partner died. So he was never able to share his love publicly. That is a good point. To not be able to share that spotlight with somebody who you admire and want the world to admire too. I don't know. You know, I don't know enough about the relationship, obviously, but it's a good point. Yeah. Have you got other regrets? Only this one private one. Okay. The runaway success of Where the Wild Things Are. There is a one-hit wonder aspect to this. Most people are going to know him for this one book. And what I hear in his discussion of it is a little bit of a conflicted relationship with it. You know, if he were to choose one of his books to be the most popular, would it have been this one? But you've also got to kind of honor it, too. I, certainly, I think if you're a musician and you have a song that is a breakout hit, but there's no others that reach that level of success, that's always kind of looked rough. You know, I wouldn't want to be that band touring where everybody's waiting for that one song when you perform, you know? 
I guess it's out of your control, but it does feel like a thing that might haunt you a little bit or might frustrate you, if nothing else. So as much as I said that I liked the masterpiece aspect of it, what I wrote for Regrets was just the label asphyxiation, which I think has to do with the fact that Where the Wild Things Are was his preeminent work. So he was always labeled as just like a children's illustrator. But then also this whole second act of his career, which was very directly related to art and illustration, almost never gets talked about. Yeah, at the same time, the art critics are infatuated with him. And the set designers were confident enough in his artistic abilities to say, why don't you design a set for, you know, our production? So I think there's something to be said of validation from, like, critics as being a separate sort of validation from book sales. Um, what did you have in regrets? My big one was coming out yep. sooner, and then the affixation of the labels, both for just being for a singular piece of work and known solely as an illustrator. Okay. So we had similar things. All right. Our next category, good dreams, bad dreams. This is not about personal perception, but rather does this person look haunted? Do they have something in the eye that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, unresolved trauma? This man's life was about outer demons, like writing them down and drawing them. It's a little bit hard to not go with a very, very obvious bad dreams answer here. Do you have a counterpoint? Only in the thing that has come up a lot in our show about artistic catharsis, you know, like working it out. I mean, he does talk a lot about, I work out my demons through my art. And as a result, like he is producing great art and he is productive for all of his life. It doesn't ever look to me to compensate for whatever trauma and pain got sort of embedded on his psyche at a young age. But I thought it was worth mentioning that there are counteracting forces to what is otherwise a very obvious tortured soul. Yes. Yeah. Should we move on? I think so. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead guest? This may be a question of what drug sounds like the most fun, or it may be about getting access to something that we're still curious about. I didn't sense a lot in the curiosity because he was very open about it. And his art was kind of that inner access. So I went cocktail just because I want to see him get angry and drop F-bombs. <laughs> I just want, I want to prompt him with like certain just current pop cultural things uh, that I know he'll detest. Yeah. And he'll give you a very strong opinion on it and then just like throw a glass of whiskey against the wall and watch it shatter. So it's cocktail for the humor? It is cocktail for the humor. But I will also say that, I mean, he's not only funny, but he's insightful. And so I think it could be a good cocktail session for not only that, for me to enjoy these very strong opinionated moments, but there is a lot behind those very strong opinionated moments. The reasons why he doesn't like and why he so extremely favors certain things, I want to hear more about. I kind of like that there's no nonsense with him, you know? I mean, when you watch a Maurice Sendak interview, and the way he furrows his brows and is, like, sort of looking at you with those beady eyes, like, and, and, and that he's got this, like, acid tongue kind of, you know, firepower I do want a ringside seat to that, you know? I, do, I, I want to hang out with that to a point. But I went cannabis, 
for largely the same reasons, the humor. I think he would crack me up. Among other things, he was apparently a great mimic. I saw people say that about him, especially at a younger age, but I would have liked to have seen that. Mimicry is funny to me. And cannabis being the vehicle towards this? Well, and the imagination. Okay. I mean, so it's the combination of those two. I think I would have laughed. I also think that there's an unbelievable imagination underneath everything else. I mean, if I thumb through a copy of Where the Wild Things Are, like, I love the sort of etched engravings, almost like wood engravings, the tactile nature of it. And one of the things that happens also in Where the Wild Things Are is early pages are framed, but then you get to the part of the book that's about the wild rumpus. And like all of a sudden the artwork is covering the entire page. There's entire worlds being created in there. I don't know if he would do that, you know, over bong rips or over a joint, but I have to think that some access to that imaginative power comes from proximity if he bothers to let you in on it. And if it has expression other than an illustration. It's also him being funny is enough. Yeah. It's also not really bong hits and joints as much these days. You could have a gummy. <laughs> I might have a gummy. Actually, that's probably the thing to do. All right. I think we're here. The final category, the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Based on everything we've talked about, the big question is, do you want this life? I'm pretty close to that 50-50 mark. I think, despite how much I admire him, in a lot of different ways, I think he's articulate in interviews. I think he's even though I'm frustrated with the New York Times anointing him as the greatest children's artist or whatever of the 20th century, I see what they're talking about. And I would love to have artwork that some describe as genius. That'd be exciting. I also, like, I really admire his take on a human life what it means to be a kid, what it means to age, what it means to be human. I think that there is something very clear-eyed and pure and brilliant about how he understands it. But I don't think that that knowledge or that insight, I'm not sure it did him any favors. At the end of the day, this life looks more painful than joyful, even if he finds joy both in his own art and in others, whether that's Emily Dickinson or Herman Melville or Mozart. I mean, he was obsessed with Mozart. All of those art forms look like relief to me, including his own. I think it's liberating. I think it's taking his own internal pain and coming up with an expression of it that heals him partly, but it doesn't ever look complete somehow. Maybe that's not the right word, but do you know what I mean by the word complete there? Mm-hmm. 20 million is a nice number. 50 years with the same partner is great. It's an interesting life and it's beautiful, but do I want it? I don't think I do. I think I'm a no. What about you? I'm right there on that middle ground as well. 
I'll tell you the the things that I love that didn't necessarily come up as explicitly at the beginning. I loved the ending, like that clarity of just joy and love emanating from him in those last five or so years of interviews. I love the masterpiece idea. Like it's it can kind of suck to live through it, I think, to be known and labeled for a singular thing, but you still leave this world with a masterpiece. Yes. And you leave this world with the utmost respect of the highest critics and highest peers imaginable. I mean, I read that Dr. Seuss in sometime in the late 70s, they asked him to say, who's your favorite contemporary artist? And he said, Syndex, Syndex, Syndex. Yeah. And so I like the ending and I like the impact. I don't think I like the ride very much. You know, it was full of death. It was full of disease. It was obviously full of fear. I don't like that in the era that you were born in that you have to live the entire duration of your love life in secrecy. But the thing I'm also going with is it just didn't look that fun. Like, you know, he was curmudgeonly and he was critical. He could have a good laugh. But I just didn't see that much fun in the whole ride. You're not going and doing readings. And you're not like a public figure, part by his choice. But it's a very, seemed kind of like a private hermited life. And there's variety to it. But, you know, I just get this image of... You know, he's in this house of Connecticut and he's sketching and these are beautifully acclaimed, highly regarded works, but it just doesn't seem that fun. It doesn't seem to have the world traveling of Curly Neal and, you know, the basically roaring good times and the signposts of big memories. Yeah, and he doesn't even seem to delight in the artwork that much. It almost seems like he has to get it out. That's a very good point. There's pride, but there's not delight. Yeah. Well, the, the playfulness was in was in his imagination and in his mind, but what it was missing for me was was just play, yeah, outward play. And it almost seems like he was denied that as a kid. Yes, exactly. And then perhaps that just fed into to every choice that he made in terms of the life that he led as a semi-private figure. Overall, I'm saying it's a great thing to have legacy, but I don't want to see all live for legacy. I want to see more live for live. And so, no, I don't want your life more, Easton Beck. Do you think anybody called him Mo? Uh, Surely somebody had to. (laughs) I'd like to think so. I think it probably would have pissed them off. I mean, I, I really feel like, I'm not sure we should leave this episode without pointing out our most recent episodes. Larry McMurtry, Curly Nail, I'll leave it for the listeners to fill in the blank. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, I guess we're here. Pearly Gates. Pearly Gates. Okay. Michael, you are Mo. Uh, You're standing before Pete at the Pearly Gates, the proxy for all things afterlife. Yeah. Make your case. So, St. Peter, I think that there's a lot of confusion down there on planet Earth about what childhood is, what it means, and what it feels like to be a kid. I devoted my life to art and trying to express what it means to be human. I actually didn't set out to be a children's illustrator or to make picture books. I made art, and people said, oh, that's for children. But what I was really trying to get at is the human condition, what it's like to be scared and vulnerable, but also courageous and imaginative what it's like to feel the need for love, what it's like to get that, what it's like to not get that. 
I did that in my illustrations, in my story, and in the combination of the two. And I think that I helped both children and adults and really everybody see the universality of that experience and maybe feel some comfort in that they're not alone in those feelings. And for that, I hope you'll let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, we have a favor to ask. We hear from a lot of people that this show cheers them up. It puts them in a good mood. So think of somebody in your life, just one person who you'd like to cheer up and share an episode of our show with them. Be like, hey man, here's an episode of Famous and Gravy. Share it with anybody who you think could stand to be put in a good mood. We are on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. We also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, famousandgravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks so much to our sponsor, Half Price Books. Thank you again for listening. Please share this episode, and we hope to see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.